Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Hey, what's up? This is Nate John, producer for the show. We recently held our annual politics summit, PolitiFest, dedicated this year to housing and water. We hosted a lot of great panels and debates and discussions. And now I'll be dropping some of our favorite discussions in this feed for you. First up, our show with California Attorney General Rob Bonta. In this panel, you're going to hear our regular podcast hosts, Scott Lewis, Andre Lopez Viafania, and Jacob McWinney, got on stage with LA Times reporter Liam Dillon and voice environment reporter Mackenzie Elmer. They reviewed some highlights of the day, particularly on the topic of water. Then they got into housing laws. This panel ends with Dillon talking one-on-one with Bonta and drilling down on housing policy questions, homelessness, and shelter. This panel even made some news, and it's a great recap of the event. Enjoy. As we wait for Bonta, I'm actually going to flip the program and invite somebody who's special to me and special to Voice San Diego, did a lot of great work here, and has been representing uh, the Voice uh, and the alumni Voice really well across the state and really across the country with his reporting. Uh, One of the things I'm most proud about what um, our reporters uh, who come to Voice, uh, I, I'm, I'm most proud about how many of them represent uh, so well uh, across the country. So, you know, you turn on the radio in the afternoon, you might hear Adrian Florido uh, in All Things Considered on NPR. Uh, we've got uh, journalists at USA Today. We've got journalists all across the country uh, doing special things that started here. And one of those that I'm most proud of and who does some of the most exciting and interesting work all the time for the LA Times is Mr. Liam Dillon. Liam, come on up. Um, how you been? I'm good. It's been it's been it's been over seven years since I was here, which seems yeah. crazy. Seven years I, since I, I left in 2016. So really? Yes, I know. Yeah, it's a long time. Well, we had yeah. just moved into the office downtown. That's right. right? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, Liam. Uh, 
You weren't that interested in housing when you were with us. Did not cover it for voice at all. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> you moved on to the LA Times. You Correct. do investigative work. You started um, kind of more at the uh, state level policy and such. I, I was hired to move to Sacramento, actually. We had LA Times has about eight or six to eight people that work out of our state capitol bureau. And so I had a kind of portfolio of things and... and you know, at the time in 2016, there was literally nobody in Sacramento covering housing. And I thought, well, why not? And so I just kind of made that one of the things that I wanted to follow. And it quickly became kind of the only thing, only thing I wanted to follow. Yeah. So um, you've done some great investigative work. Uh, uh, Andrea was a big fan of the Selling Sunsets. Uh, <laughs> uh, investing, sun, selling Sunset. Set. Yes. Was that necessary? <laughs> You needed to correct me on that, did you? The reality show where one of the stars, uh, the husband of one of the stars... Right, who's a reality impresario himself. Actually, why don't yeah. you tell the story? Okay, so um, the, the, he, he, the guy, I guess the show... I, don't, I, I do watch Selling Sunset. I will admit, I watch Selling Sunset. I'm a little bit addicted. It's great, it's great television, great television. My wife doesn't like it as much as I do, but... Uh, I like it. But anyway, I did not watch the husband's show, which I guess he house flips, right? It's flip or flop, uh, Tarek, El, El, Tarek El Musa, right? And he had, I guess, gotten involved with him and his wife and a bunch of other investors to try to buy up a, uh, uh, some properties in L.A., in, in, uh, in, in, in North Hollywood. And they alighted on a property of particular interest. Uh, and doing all these videos, very reality TV star about how, like, it's going to be the biggest flip of my life and you, investor, can get in on the ground floor, just, you know, give us some money. And they were running all sorts of slide decks and stuff. And what the, the kicker of this is what they didn't talk about for obvious reason is that this property that was going to be the biggest flip of his life and they got a great deal buying, the reason is that the guy who owned it was recently convicted of trying to arson out the tenants who were living at that property. With fire. With arson, fire. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. arson's a big word around here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they were posting eviction notices on the on the remaining, res of which there were few, residents. Um, twice, right? There was fires twice? There was multiple fires. <laughs> the, the last one was what, sort of the one that really did it. The guy was, and the guy, oh, the guy who was uh, had the arson additionally was was recently convicted of uh, hiring a hitman to to kill a rival, like his lawyer in a previous thing. So this guy, you know, I mean, quite a, so this is why this property is on the market. It's because you have a they, he tried to burn down burn out his residence. Yeah, yeah. So Liam has a way of angering people <laughs> with some of his reporting. Uh, this guy was kind of angry, right? Kind of angry, not really. Kind of subtweeted a little. Bit. I, I got blocked on Instagram. Oh. Which, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are worse things in life. But, yes, but um, uh, you've you've had a lot of uh, uh, some touchy subject, subjects going on. One of the things, though, you've followed, I thought, has been fascinating over the last little while, has been developers who are um, sort of circumventing their local development restrictions, uh, using the laws that the state has passed to to make it possible for them to build things without. Um, having to conform to the local restrictions on yeah. that. Tell me some of the stories involved there and what, what's actually happening. So this has been really interesting, a nice kind of arc for, for me and my reporting where I feel like I have this kind of sweet spot for what I sort of know, right? So I, as I mentioned, I was in Sacramento for about three and a half years where I covered a lot of the initial legislation that was passed 
sort of designed uh, in a sense to make um, a it easier to build sort of writ large and also be harder for local governments to say no to projects, right? To sort of streamline the process. Um, and there is this sort of, and now I was there for three and a half years and now I'm in LA where I write mostly about sort of um, neighborhood level issues that kind of interact with policy that's going on um, uh, around the state. And so, you know, there were these batteries, like over a hundred laws passed from 2017 forward designed again to kind of make it easier to build and also keep local governments from saying no. And there's this sort of crop, and I, I found a guy in LA, uh, really interesting, who, uh, particularly on uh, parcels that were zoned single family home uh, uh, only, you could only previously have built a single family home, found this sort of way to put together like a half dozen of these laws to essentially, he would argue, you know, build big condos um, and local government can't say no. And so it's just this really interesting kind of methodology where developers almost exclusively used to have to rely on their relationships with city council members or whomever to kind of get the gr wheels greased to get their projects through. And there's this sort of increasing kind of uh, group of developers, including this guy in, in, in LA um, that, that I'm, uh, I'm mentioning, um, who are really trying to rely on these new sort of rights that they've been granted by cities to be able to say, you know, um, oh, you say no, well then you'll, you'll see me in court and look, the law says I have a good chance of winning. Has there been, um, have the cities found ways to fight back or are they um, just kind of saying like, wow, this guy's really clever, good job? No, I mean, they're, they're setting up these court battles and this is the sort of thing where like, because these laws are so new, then it is unclear what the ultimate arrangement is. And it is like, it, it is also very fact specific. You know, one of the laws, there's this um, kind of very scary term called the builder's remedy, which I guess there may be communities in San Diego that are um, uh, uh, where this would apply, but it essentially says, you know, every eight years, every city in the state has to put forward a housing blueprint that says, we will allow for X amount of number of new units in our community, and the state has to say that's good enough, right? So, you know, um, 400 units for a smaller city, maybe up to like a, you know, a, a few hundred thousand, right? Or even, or more in LA. And um, if a city's out of compliance with that, so that the state has not signed off or their, their project or their, their blueprint's not good, then a developer could come in and say, oh, on this particular parcel, I want to use the builder's remedy. That means as long as I set aside a certain amount of portion of my development for low income or, or entirely moderate income, you, I want to build this and you can't say no. But there's all these weird like, well, is it when the city council passes the blueprint, does this kind of say that you're no longer eligible for the builder's remedy? Is it when the state says it's okay? Is it when like the state says it's okay and the city council comes back to affirm the fact that the city says it's okay? So there's all these sort of timeline things that are not quite spelled out. And that's what these sort of developers are testing these kind of like kind of new rights that they've been granted. Does, does it feel like those laws were passed as a, intending to just be a threat as opposed to being used like this? Is this like, they're like not ready because they, they weren't ever right. meant to be used? Right, so I am not aware, and this is all relatively new, but I'm not aware of, and I may be wrong because I don't follow this religiously, um, of one builder's remedy project that has actually broken ground anywhere in the state. And someone may call me out on that and that's fine, I would like to be educated. Um, but there was a circumstance I did write about in, in Santa Monica in LA, a developer there who owned a lot of land proposed like 5,000 units under this plan and this the city was sort of 
Uh, what do we do? It's sort of risky on both sides. And what they did was they came to an agreement with the developer and said, we're going to process your projects X amount percent faster. We're going to resolve some other litigation that you have. And you're going to pump you to the front of the line. And, and then you'll just withdraw your applications. And that's what the, the ultimately, at the end of the day, the developer wanted was if he could get some advantage that he wasn't going to get otherwise, that was good enough and you know more solid than trying to go to courts, which risky and could take years, but the threat sort of had to be there or else the city could have very easily called the bluff and that's not really what happened in that circumstance. Mm. Um, uh, you mentioned your wife. I'd like to give a shout out to my wife, Ashley, and my daughter, Ruby. Hello, Ruby, thanks for coming. <laughs> I was very excited I did that. Um, let's talk about another thing. So okay. one of the um, causes or sort of events that led to our housing crisis, our homelessness crisis, has been the just absolute destruction of single room occupancy hotels. Um, uh, it's almost like we've created a system where there's no last rung of the ladder anymore of just, you know, uh, of places that people go go. And you, it, throughout history, or at least, uh, you know, modern history, there's always been uh, boarding homes or, or these kind of places that people could at least find shelter, could at least find affordable places to stay. Uh, I think the number, uh, I'm sure Lisa has the exact number she here, um, thousands of, uh, of units, how many, 3,000? 10,000. It's debated. It's debated. Okay, thanks Lisa. Uh, there's uh, um, thousands and thousands of units were destroyed in San Diego and, it, and a lot of people see a direct line between that and the homelessness crisis. Um, you've done a lot of reporting in LA and, uh, and issues around the state about uh, some of the things that go along with single room occupancy. So even if you wanna try to run things right now uh, as a SRO, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard. Can you tell us some of the things you found? Yeah, so I've been distributing a lot of reporting in Skid Row, um, and I sort of feel, honestly, as a housing reporter in California, if you Describe don't... Describe Skid Row. So Skid Row is, a, is like a, a contained area that's been sort of set up by uh, various powers that be in Los Angeles many years ago to essentially, it quite literally, contain the homelessness uh, crisis in L.A., and the idea was, as, you know, uh, similar to many other discriminatory um, uh, laws was to basically put a population that that uh, wealthier um, and frankly whiter uh, members of LA society did not want to see um, in a particular place so they wouldn't have to see them. Um, and, you know, um, it's sort of a, a moral stain on, uh, I think, this country that uh, places like Skid Row exist um, in terms of how they were created and, and this really immense human suffering that goes on daily, hourly, every minute um, there. So um, there is a lot of this kind of single-room occupancy housing in Skid Row, um, and the largest landlord uh, in, in Skid Row was an organization called a Skid Row Housing Trust, and they sort of made their name in the 90s by um, buying up these old, uh, and they're nonprofit landlords, they would rely on tax credits and other sorts of you know, uh, subsidy funding to, to do their projects buy up these old SROs, um, re refur refurbish them, and then uh, more recently with the rise of housing first policies, pair them with supportive services. Well, you know, 30 years on, these SROs are um, in need of another rehab, and there was not money there to do them. And, uh, you know, the business model essentially became broken 
So much so that the earlier this year, the landlord financially collapsed. Um, they don't exist any, well, they barely exist. Uh, they are uh, into receivership um, because of all sorts of problems. I mean, awful plumbing problems, service goes away, just really unlivable. I was in one a couple weeks ago, really unlivable sorts of spaces. And in some ways, this was the flagship housing provider in Skid Row, 2,000 units. And, you know, LA's homelessness crisis is awful. San Diego's is too. You can't lose these sorts of last resort housing without a huge domino effect on um, the rest of the homeless population in, in the community. And the big fear is if this business model for pairing um, services with these sorts of buildings can't function, can't economically function, then you're, this is almost like a canary in a coal mine situation, which is these, these, these nonprofit providers are gonna continue to fail. And then that's going to just simply take units offline when um, everyone is desperately centered on trying to trying to add units, but what are they going to do? Great question. They don't know. Um, there is they own twenty nine properties. Some of the newer ones they're trying to fix up to the extent that they can transition over to other uh, nonprofit housing providers. But there's about a dozen, and they're all these SROs, right? SRO, you know, uh, uh, common bathrooms, um, often no kitchens, very small units, but also you can rent you can rent them, you know, pretty affordably compared to what what, what you know what else is on the market. Um, there's about a dozen of these that are solely owned by the trust, and they quite literally don't know what to do with them. Um, I spoke with the head of the LA Housing Department last week, and basically the plan now is write up a plan to ask the state for money. I mean, that's the plan. The plan is to, to get plan. a bailout. Plans to plan for a bailout. To plan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's depressing. Yes. Um, uh, let me ask you one other thing. So there's yeah. a lot of movement in San Diego for some big uh, investments in, in subsidized housing. Uh, there's a mansion tax being, uh, I, I guess, um, uh, a high-value transaction tax. Yeah. Um, there's one in L.A. that just passed, yeah. Yeah, and so this is a little, they're trying to learn some lessons from L.A. and do it better. So like um, a progressive? Yeah, uh, okay. make yeah. it make a little more progressive. Also allow new uh, construction to be uh, exempted from it so yeah. that they don't have to worry about that. Um, and there's, you know, a, a push for, for this. L.A. did see some just rather large things like uh, the, the, the transaction tax, uh, the housing bond, um, and there were just a lot of public investments going on in housing there. I think there was a sense that it didn't make a difference or it hasn't make it, made a difference yet, and it, and it caused a lot of cynicism. Is that fair? Yes, and I think that goes back to, I think I heard one of the earlier panels discussing it. It's the same problem in L.A. as it is in San Diego, as it is in the Bay Area, that you just, you are, everyone's housing a lot of people, but there are more people who are falling into homelessness than people are being housed. And so even, yeah, I mean, there are thousands of new permanent supportive housing, homeless housing units that are being built in LA, but homeless is getting worse. And so I think in many respects that the public rightfully says, well, I just approved X amount of billion dollars. Yeah, this building's go up, but it's not solving the problem. So why should I continue yeah. to, to, to support that? I think, you know, a few years ago I did do, and this is uh, something that I, I sort of keep harping on because I think it's really, really important when we're talking about building low-income and homeless housing is that, um, you know, the cost to build it is exorbitant. You know, I wrote about a project, um, the story ran in uh, early 2020, yeah. and the feature project was in Solana Beach, um, uh, a, a, what became a 10-unit affordable housing project um, would cost, uh, it ended up imploding because of the cost, but a million dollars a unit. 
right? Um, and now, there was just a story the other day about Skyline and Rancho Bernardo, uh, $980,000 Really, here? Yeah. Yeah. So since then, I mean, I did a story last summer, a half dozen, and this is the one in Solana Beach fell apart. Um, but the, there was a half dozen in the Bay Area that were getting, this was last summer, that were, had gotten money and were under construction, underground, where they were over a million a unit. And, you know, there's a lot of, the, yeah, like, like you, you know, the government can't control what the price of wood is or whatever, right, or what interest rates are. But they can control a lot about what goes into um, the cost of building low-income housing. And, um, you know, it's just obvious. If the, 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 you can't stretch the dollar if it costs as much to Cost as much to build. Um, how you feeling? You feeling strong? I'm good. Okay. Yeah. Can you grab those two chairs over there? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like one arm each. Like, is that what she wants? No, however you want. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you just had to do that, huh? I was going to say, I'll just note for the record, I did it two at once and you, you did. Yeah, no, I saw it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We used to have push-up contests. We did at have push-up contests, yeah. yes. Leah, uh, Lisa loved that. I was a <laughs> big fan of that. Um, uh, okay. What? What's going to prevent us from building what we've torn down that was built in the 50s and 60s? The low-income housing project that you turned just had a random question from the audience for the, it's a live podcast, so I got to speak. So what's going to prevent us from rebuilding what was already there? No, rebuilding the old, you're too young for this, but the old <laughs> low-income housing is a major... Oh, like the... the so you, you're asking about public housing and... Yeah. So what, 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 so what, I guess your question, what lessons did we learn from that that keep that from... From happening again. Well, I think, uh, you know, you can't tell the story of public housing without telling the story of how public housing through um, discriminatory laws became, you know, it was a, it, a racist um, a scenario where, you know, a lot of the original public housing developments, there were in, they were integrated and they were a lot of white people who were living in them once um, once um, suburbanization allowed, again, a largely white population to get low interest loans or to be able to buy houses and move to the suburbs, those, um, those housing projects they de facto became segregated and became um, extremely last resort housing for the poorest people. And so that system, I think, is inextricably linked with what I, the, the ultimate decline of what public housing was, right? And so I think one way to not do that again is to simply not do that, right? Um, and I think... You know, there's a lot of ideas about how uh, potentially, you know, having mixed income communities. I mean, there's a lot of like, like, you know, de facto, there's not a lot of difference between uh, public housing buildings and what you see as what are affordable housing buildings right now in terms of um, the amount, the income that folks have to make to live in them. Um, and so if, if there's no problem with that, then I don't think necessarily switching it to being strict public housing where the government owns and operates would be uh, any different than, um, than, than, than what exists right now. And I believe on your ballot in a year, there will be a public housing measure. There is right? a measure um, on, and I've written a little bit about this, there's um, a very uniquely California has a provision in its constitution um, that is anti-public housing that was passed during the Red Scare in the 50s. Um, uh, also discriminatory. Um, uh, at the time, the realtors uh, group who was behind it 
um, uh, had a policy in their code of ethics, of all things, that said, we will not integrate neighborhoods. Like, that was their code of ethics. We will not integrate. We will not integrate neighborhoods. That was their, their code of ethics in the, in the 50s. At the time, they sponsored an issue that said, um, uh, if you want public housing in a community, there has to be a local public vote for it. Uh, and so that uh, obviously stymied the development of, of public housing. Um, they, they've uh, certainly through the first 20 years that was in effect, um, there have been some ways to get around it. It's not quite dead letter, like that it still affects things. Um, but yes, there is currently a provision that would be voted on uh, next year statewide that would remove uh, what's now known as Article 34 from the Constitution, which would allow essentially public housing to be treated like every other kind of housing. Um, and just to be clear about the distinction, public housing fully operated and, and run Correct. and funded by the government as opposed to this subsidy system. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. I'd like to invite a couple of people first to just one to start. Um, so she is our uh, TikTok star, rising TikTok star. Uh, she is an uh, environment reporter. She will give you advice on how to keep your um, green bin from becoming a pit to hell. It's, uh, um, I, I, does anybody take their, their organics out and just like open that and put it away? It's terrifying. Um, uh, she's a very special person who did a great job today pulling a lot of really interesting people together to talk about water, uh, the Colorado River, um, and uh, all the issues that are involved with the future of our civilization in the, in the Western United States. Um, and I'm very excited to bring her up. Mackenzie Elmer, come on up. Oh, this is like 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 the talk show, like, like a talk, talk show. show. Okay, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Bonta's got me all screwed. I'm doing the best thing. Yeah, doing great. I thought I was like TikTok star. I was like, oh, Andrea's next for sure. Yeah, but uh, uh, okay. she's okay. You're 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 a little better. Wow. I have no comment. I'm gonna stay away from that. What do you think uh, about today's uh, Colorado River session? I was a little disappointed that they didn't figure out how to divide up what remains of the Colorado River. That was what I asked them to do um, before they got here, but yeah, unfortunately, it sounds like they didn't do their homework. I'm still <laughs> fascinated. Can I just express, so I didn't really articulate this really well when, when I asked the question or when I re reflected the reader's question or the audience question, but I find it, uh, the law of the river is this, this like you described, this very uh, complex series of Supreme Court decisions, just mutual compacts, uh, treaties, all kinds of stuff about who has rights to the Colorado River. And it just feels like it's this, this agreement that humans can change their mind eventually. And, and like they said in Australia, the, 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 the country just decided like, yeah, this rule you have about how to use this water, it's out the window because you guys haven't figured it out. We don't have enough water. Everything's falling apart. And I, I feel like the tenuousness of this of this system of you know uh, Imperial Valley having the first access to the water, of uh, us now buying that access or part of it from them, it just all feels like it's built on this on this rule of law. That yes, we're I'm really excited about the rule of law, and I hope it stays intact. But it does feel like it could be bullied really easily. Did you pull up any insight about um, about the situation and and um, just you know what they're going to do to make sure that that it can continue to survive as an agreement? Yeah, well, it's, I think it's very, because it's so complex, 
in its creation, it's a very complex process to potentially undo. I don't, I don't know if that's what, that doesn't seem to be what's on the table, but kind of what, what lesson I learned from going to the Colorado River Water Users Association, uh, and they hold this like big conference in Caesars Palace at Las Vegas and all these water, Colorado River people come and make negotiations over the slot machines. Um, they, the, the whole system is sort of set up to not be about conservation. It's like, the water is mine, uh, and then if I don't use it, I lose it. And so it's it's not really a system that's like set up to say, oh, let's share, or oh, you know, even though I think that's what we're trying to do because we're being forced to do it. And I think the biggest example of this was the um, American Indian tribes that really were like given water rights, and I'm using quotes here, but um, not not many of them were you know supported financially to be able to develop stuff to use the water. So they just a lot of the water that they have rights to just sort of flows through the system down to the next user. So it's going to take a lot of unpacking to kind of like make sure everybody has enough to survive, and then survive in quotes again because it means you know survive what agriculture survive or like people who need drinking water in San Diego survive? Uh, that's the big question we have on the table. I don't know if you all picked up on this, but I thought it was really interesting where um, Adele from uh, the GM of the Metropolitan Water District was here, and he was talking about how when the drought started to really um, hit its peak, the last one, uh, uh, I guess a year and a half ago before the rains came, um, there was a, a severe cutback for some of the Metropolitan Water District customers in the LA area. And we were protected, San Diego was protected from that because of this purchase of water that we had gotten, or partly because of this purchase of water we had made from Imperial Valley. And I thought it was like, it was just really interesting to see the tables kind of turn where Metropolitan felt itself vulnerable uh, because of the drought where it was the, the drought that, that in the 90s that they were experiencing and when Metropolitan was cutting back on San Diego that caused us to panic to do all this work to get more um, water in. But I, I, I think that that was a, a really interesting moment and it was also really awkward to know that that had happened and the, and the San Diego guy was here saying like, yeah, we, we were okay because we bought this water, but you bought it from the Imperial Valley. It's not like we had more, you know, and, and, and the, the exchange of that was that there, there was a public health crisis brewing in Imperial County. Do you, do you sense that um, the Water Authority is going to make good on its promise, that the whole Southern California is going to make good on its promise to take care of the people in Imperial County and the Salton Sea? Uh, well, I, I mean, I feel like Imperial Valley, you know, they're going to be very protective of, of further cuts, but I think they're also showing that they're first to step up to the plate to offer water to, to, re, to reduce their use and conserve. And that's kind of what we saw, like, when the federal government was like, everybody needs to cut, like, somebody's got to do it. And then Imperial Valley did step forward and say, okay, we volunteer X amount, like, we're going to do it. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I don't know. The, the problem that we face and that California keeps talking about is the salt and sea. It's like, if we keep cutting at one place, maybe Imperial Valley, like, what are we going to do other than just, like, build a big pipeline from the ocean to, like, fill the salt and sea so that it doesn't turn into this massive, like, air pollution problem in the middle of the desert? So I think that's kind of what you're getting yeah. at. Um, and that still remains to be solved. I mean, it's not getting better over there, as we've heard from uh, Michael Cohen, who came yeah. and visited us. Okay, I'm going to bring somebody else up. <laughs> she's, uh, she's okay at TikTok. 
She's okay at podcasting. She's pretty good at a lot of things. She's been a great managing editor over the last uh, two years now, right? And, uh, and a great fellow podcast host for me, and I've been very excited to collaborate with her. Uh, Andrea Lopez Villafaña Lopez, come on up. I'm just uh, shooting. Is Rob Bonta here yet? Or... <laughs> oh, hello. No. <laughs> um, okay. Hey, I'm good at everything. You are really good at everything. Yeah. Um, so you just, I didn't get to see it, but you just got to moderate the panel about the cost of water. So one of the consequences of all these water deals we've made is the ratepayers in San Diego have had to shell out a ton of money to make these transfers possible, to do desal, to do all these things. And all of that cost of water has made two water agencies decide they want to leave San Diego. It looks like they are going to leave San Diego, the Water Authority, and join the Metropolitan Water District through a different agency. And um, part of the reason is because of the cost. They say they can get a lot cheaper water, and they can from the Metropolitan Water District. You had one of them debate uh, one of the board members of the Water Authority about the cost of water. I wish I could have seen it, but I was doing another debate about the housing stuff. Uh, how'd it go? Yeah, things going on. Yeah. Um, well, Mackenzie was there, which made me extra nervous because she <laughs> is our expert. It was a smackdown, Scott. You didn't mention it was us. Yeah, well, it was so cost of water smackdown. Yeah. Um, I would say it was a friendly smackdown. Maybe. Well, you know, it could have gotten crazier. I also, um, it was a mistake of mine, but I ended the panel early. I got confused with the time. So we probably could have, you know, I'm sure there were some more smacks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it was interesting, right? So I was joined by uh, Nick Serrano. He's the vice chair of the San Diego County Water Authority. He represents the city of San Diego ratepayers. And um, Jack Beebe, who is general manager of Fallbrook. Fallbrook Public Utility, Utilities District. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously he represents one of the districts that's trying to leave the San Diego County Water Authority. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was fascinating. I think, like, Jack pointed out how, you know, he's doing things in the best interest of his ratepayers and they're just paying too much and he just he's tried to have conversations going back several years about you know what we can do like we're suffering we don't benefit from all these infrastructure investments that you've made as a water authority and you know just trying to like come to the table at least that was what he was saying um and so now they're at the point where they're going to leave and yeah i don't know what you Well mean. it's interesting that that happened after this panel about the QSA because we were here celebrating how great the QSA was to save San Diego and have a bunch of water through the drought. And then, I don't know what the QSA is. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Well, I can't believe I threw it in an acronym. Um, basically, the big California water deal that San Diego made to buy water from Imperial Valley farmers. Thank you, Liam. Yes. Um, and uh, But in the cost of water smackdown, you know, they were like, Nick was saying, well... We, we need to look at our investments. Like, maybe we should get rid of this water. You know, that's kind of what I think Nick what he was that? alluding to. I think there was an allusion to that, and there's been an allusion to that for some time now, is like, maybe we should look at some of these deals we made that are quite expensive and have, like, kind of locked us into buying expensive water. Do we really need it? Because now we're recycling all of our water, which San Diego... I, I think that's a really interesting point, because I think that he and others are really excited about the Water Authority continuing to build things, 
but maybe not buy more water, right? Like they're, and I think in large part, they have a lot of labor allies that want to build those things. I think there's a lot of people who want to um, make more investments. And I think that's part of what concerns them about the two agencies that are leaving, because if the two agencies leave others, it might be an indication that the investment frenzy is over and maybe they wanted to build some more things before that. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because obviously they're, you know, in one way, like they're on different sides, right, of the argument. Uh, Jack representing a group that wants to leave. Uh, Nick, you know, representing a group that wants them to stay. Um, but they were both in agreement about these investments and whether they should be looking at these investments. I think Jack was, um, called it insurance, right? And like you have a lot of insurance. Do you re really need all of that insurance? Uh, let's talk about that, right? And so it was interesting that they kind of agreed. It, it was funny that they were agreeing so much. So I was well, like, all right, let's get into the spice. I think it would have been a little bit more smack, smacky if uh, we're a couple months prior. When, I thought so too, yeah. Uh, but right now I think they're all talking about how to kind of move forward. But yeah. It's still it's pretty spicy still, I thought. Um, I just got a text from the Attorney General, uh, not him, but uh, their people, and they said that he's on his way, but he will be here just before 5, so that's another 12 minutes. Can we do this? We can do this, right? 12 just, minutes? You guys still want to hear from him and Liam and the question? All right. Well, um, he's a showman. He's a musician. He didn't want to sing the national anthem for me today. It's fine. Uh, as other duties assigned didn't fit that. Um, he's also, uh, I think, the premier education reporter in San Diego, and he's been a great member of the pod team. I'd like to welcome up Jacob McQuinney. Uh, wow. Giving up your chair, very, very gracious of you. I got a whole system here. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, are there any of my um, note takers, right? Well, raise your hand if you've been taking notes for some of these sessions. We got students out here um, doing the work. Uh, I gave them a little pep talk about doing journalism. And uh, one of the basic things that um, we try to teach our journalists is that if they think something's interesting, they have to trust themselves enough to believe that other people will as well. It's the, it's the hardest skill journalists have to develop. Uh, because it really is a, a confidence thing, and Liam's never lacked for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think Lopez has ever lacked for that, but some people do go for that, and so I, that was the main lesson I gave them, is if they were in some of these sessions, uh, to try to write down something that they thought was interesting, because it probably would be an indication that others uh, thought uh, that was interesting as well. So, you got to watch several of these sessions. Uh, you got to, you know, walk around and see some of these things. You worked with some of these note takers. What stood out to you? Anything? Um, I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who really like water here. That's, that's, that's fairly clear. And yeah. I, I, I like it too. I mean, I think Gatorade is a little better, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, water is clearly one of the issues of our time. And, um, it, it's, it's very interesting to see all of the different sides. I mean, that's one thing that really stood out, right? We have Imperial Valley worrying about public health crises. We have Fallbrook worrying about prices. We have San Diego worrying about capacity and new building. Um, and that's, that's been something that's incredible to see, all of the, the gathering of, of these sort of, you know, water eggheads all in one place. It's been pretty interesting. Yeah. 
Did we succeed then, Jacob? I remember we were in the newsroom, you were kind of, not to out you, but you were kind of like, I don't know how this is relevant to me, this Colorado River stuff, and you know. And I was like, damn it if I'm not gonna make it relevant to Jacob. And now it seems like it's true. Well, well no one's building a school on the Colorado River, and so oh, okay, well. maybe not relevant to my beat. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, um, I would like to uh, excuse you now. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> everybody, let's hear it for the podcast team. Liam? Do, do you want me to carry the chairs? Yeah, okay. two okay. more we chairs. Can do that. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, uh, he's the Attorney General, and he came in uh, just to speak to you all and to uh, endure Liam Dillon's questions, so we're very grateful for him uh, making the trip and coming here. I'd like to welcome up to the stage Attorney General Rob Bonta. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm gonna hand the stage over to you, sir. Sounds great. Uh, good luck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I wanted to start, um, you're from the Bay Area, um, by, which by some accounts face California's immense housing challenges statewide, but some accounts faced it first. Um, and before you became AG, you were a state legislator, uh, where housing was one of your top priorities. In fact, um, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the author of a bill that, um, that would uh, ultimately ended up getting a version of it passed where uh, 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 tenants would have to be, um, if they were going to be evicted, had to have a cause. So uh, not paying rent or any other lease violation, that was not a state law until it was your bill that was a part of that um, uh, package getting passed. And I'm curious how much of your background as a legislator has informed what you do now in your, in your current role? Well, first of all, thank you all for the opportunity to, to join you. I'm excited to be here and, and appreciate the conversation, the focus on housing. Um, and we all know when it comes to housing, we're in a full-on state of emergency, state of crisis. We need to use all the tools in the toolbox, everything in our power to uh, move the needle, make a difference. And for, for me, I, I, I feel it's a huge advantage um, to have the experience of being a legislator for almost um, a decade and, and serving in in, in Sacramento, representing an incredible district that I'm very proud of, uh, anchored in Oakland, Alameda, and San Leandro, where a lot of the, the pushes for building more housing, for protecting tenants, um, really picked up steam and built momentum. And so having the experience to be involved in some of the, the biggest fights, and, and AB 1482, which you referenced, was the strongest tenant protection law ever passed in the state of California, the strongest in the United States. It has anti-rent gouging and it has just cause eviction protections. And Assembly member David Chu, now city attorney, and I teamed up at, at the time to make that happen. City and attorney in San Francisco. City attorney in San Francisco. And a, a, a huge housing warrior and champion. And, and so, you know, I cut my teeth in the legislature on, on all these issues. And, and as a legislator, you have a, a blank palette. You can introduce and propose any law that you think needs to be introduced. You can seek to remove and eradicate any unjust law or unfair law or law with unintended consequences. The, my new role is different, and I really love the executive branch, I'll say. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity to enforce and move quickly and, and um, with force and authority, and we have a lot of tools to, 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 to work with in terms of enforcing the law. So uh, all my views on homelessness, tenant protections, housing production, 
uh, were developed in the legislature and you know being in the middle of some of the biggest debates with our and then having colleagues in the legislature and, and in the governor's office has been very helpful as well. So that a nice segue to my what I want to talk about next, which is there have been a lot of new housing laws that have been passed over the last six, seven years. Some of them gave your office more powers to enforce these laws. Um, even created a new unit within your office to monitor local governments. Uh, you gave them a kind of a marvelesque names, um, housing justice, housing justice team, right? Uh, housing strike force. Um, yeah, you know, superheroes. Um, but um, um, I, I'm curious, you know, what you think has been the most significant change as it comes to either politics, culture, or legislation as it, relate, as it relates to the AG's office and how it addresses or thinks about housing issues in the state? You know, every attorney general and every leader serves in a certain moment and brings their own lived experiences, values, priorities to the job. And I'm honored to occupy a role that has been previously occupied by incredible leaders, from Jerry Brown to Vice President Harris to Secretary Becerra. And uh, each of us ha have our own priorities, and one of mine was housing. And my priorities are defined not necessarily by what I think about when I'm alone in, in, in a room and, and I um, think about all the issues that need to be addressed. I, I try to make the priorities of the people of California my priority. So whatever the top issues are, homelessness and housing, affordability will always be a top issue. It's one of the most pressing issues now. And so my question to my team when I was appointed in, in March and, and sworn in, in in April of 2021 is what are we doing on housing and how can we do more? How can we be the champion and the advocate for the people of California that we need to be. And we were doing some things on housing, but we needed to do more, in, in, in my view. So we created a, a special unit. It was originally called the Housing uh, Strike Force, now the Housing Justice Unit, and uh, putting resources and institutionalizing a, a priority and a principle really shows the value that you give to it. And um, you know, we have a lot, we were looking at all the levers that we have, we were given new, new powers, new laws came online as we took office, SB9, SB10, um, some, you know, a lot of the laws on ADUs, we started seeing cities across the, the state really do their best and, and be involved in mental gymnastics to avoid their legal duties, yep. to, to not build, you know, really trying hard to not build. And, and our belief has always been, you know, follow the law, work in good faith, do your part. We will work with you. We don't want to sue you. Uh, we want to help you comply. We want to advise, counsel, uh, sometimes cajole, and sometimes compel. And, but, but we don't seek to sue if we don't have to. Um, but I think one of the, the biggest issues was just saying, we care about housing. We're going to fight on housing. Great partner in HCD with the governor's office and great partner in the legislature. And so it was... And, and just enforcing the existing law was so, very important. So it sounds like you're saying more so than any particular law or policy is almost a culture shift. You wanting to come in and making that uh, a priority was, do you think, has been the most significant in terms of your role? For me, yeah. and, and I think the biggest changes are, are driven internally by folks with positional power, people in elected office, like, like myself, which I currently have the honor and privilege to serve, but also outside uh, forces. I call it the inside-outside game. And to me, the rise of the Yimbis has been game-changing. For, for Yimbis to step up and be loud and be aggressive and be politically involved and policy involved, that's changed everything. And uh, you know, when I started in elected office, it was all NIMBY all the time. And I was in, a, I was in local office. And that, to have that counter-narrative, that counter-force to uh, be involved, to push back, and, and I think to be winning the day now has been very helpful. 
So uh, there are many possible avenues for your office to act um, in this space. Um, specific denials of housing projects, um, required housing element blueprints that cities have to put together every year to say this is where we want to allow for building new housing. Um, you know, how do, how do, I'm really curious about how you think about and how your office thinks about prioritizing where you want to act or when, where you do act. The, one of the most important things is just to act. To, to show that there is accountability, enforcement, teeth, when cities fail to comply. And sometimes we address some of the most egregious violations, like a town self-declaring itself a mountain lion sanctuary. Yes. When it's not a mountain lion sanctuary. Th this to, actually to, happened. This happened. Yes. This happened in the town of Woodside to, to try to avoid, uh, you know, the, the requirements, the mandatory requirements of SB9. Which is, sorry, just that that's so you would allow um, uh, the duplexes and potentially fourplexes single family. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, lot splitting, uh, which, which is mandatory. And there are some exemptions, including if you're a mountain lion sanctuary. So they thought that would be a, a good thing to do, even though it wasn't true. And, and, and so getting involved right away, forcefully, publicly, and having them change course immediately, literally within 24 hours, was, was important. We didn't, we didn't pick that fight. We didn't know a town was going to declare itself a, a Mount Lion sanctuary. But when it happened, it was important to leap into action immediately. We, we often leave, we team up with HCD. Um, in the governor's office, they tend to focus more on housing element enforcement and work, and we tend to enforce the existing laws, SB9, SB10, ADU laws, so we can sort of split up the responsibilities that way. But we find ourselves teaming up a lot, and um, it's important to get involved because it sends a message early. And we can't enforce, and we hope we don't have to enforce in every city every time, but when we enforce forcefully and immediately and authoritatively and change the course of what a city is doing, other cities take notice. We, we saw after our, our Woodside enforcement on, on SB9, on lot splitting, the lot splitting law, we found that other, in the minutes from the dais, other cities like Santa Monica and, and, and Fullerton were saying the, the attorney general's view of SB9 and his enforcement um, prevents us from taking this step that we were going to take to avoid the, the requirements of SB9, so we need to follow it. So you're saying, essentially, if you pick a high-profile battle and you're definitive enough, then you think it would have a deterrent effect, and, that, and that's a part of how you prioritize what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, it has a ripple effect. It has a sense of message, and so, um, and, and that's important. So I want to ask about one specific situation. I'm going to read it to make sure I get it exactly right. Um, but cities here in the San Diego area have had, or have had to approve these uh, state-approved housing blueprints in 2021, so a while ago. Uh, the city of Coronado um, submitted a plan to the state uh, in 2021 that only accounted for a third of the 900 units that they were required to plan for. Uh, during a meeting in June of that year, Coronado council members said that they were they were aware the state could crack down, but they weren't really worried about it. And one council member said, and I'll quote, we would probably have a few years before they might get serious about that, end quote. So that council member was right. Um, no lawsuit, um, no definitive action. Here's, and my point is, so here's a city, right, that's thumbed its nose at the state uh, two years ago and said, eh, you know, these guys aren't going to do anything. And they ended up being proven right. So what is that? situation say about um, the, the kind of action, or in this case, you know, lack thereof, that, that the, your office and, and, and others at the state are, are taking on these, on these points? 
Uh, I'll first say that that council member uh, is not right, and they are not going to be proven right. We will be, but it's been two years. They were proven right. I mean, they said a couple years before they do anything, and here we are. Well, let me just finish the thought here. We're on the verge of announcing something. We, we are well aware of Coronado, and, and to your point about priority, uh, the most brazen violators are our priority. Uh, Huntington Beach is a priority. They've been a brazen violator, a multiple violator over time, uh, willfully, knowingly, intentionally violating the laws of the state of California. And so that's a problem for us. So we get involved. We, Coronado um, has also been, has failed to comply as well. We have been engaged with them. We have been speaking with them. We are in the final stages of a resolution which will bring them into compliance. And so we have a term sheet. It needs to be voted on. We're hopeful and optimistic that it will get final approval by um, the, the council. It has not yet. Um, and that can happen as early, I believe, as next week or, or the week after. So uh, we usually don't announce um, anything before it's final. And there's nothing to announce now because it's not final. But since you asked a question, uh, I'll say it's been on our radar. We've been engaged. Uh, we haven't had to sue. Um, and if this gets approved, we won't have had to sue because we will get the outcome that is required uh, by our engagement and our threats to sue and, and, and subsequent negotiation to get them in compliance. So they will be in compliance in very short order if they, if they vote um, you know, to approve the term sheet. So I was going to say, I think the mayor, Corona was here earlier, so I don't know. I mean, you could have served him earlier if, if you <laughs> But no, no, need, no need to serve them. We're, okay. we're, 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 we're negotiating the final outcome to get them in compliance. Got it. Um, I have one other question on the prioritization, because I think this is really, as I said, since you sort of act in infinite ways, why you decide to act where and when, I think it's really interesting and important to understand what ultimately happens here. You know, there's been some criticism that, you, that your office and also the governor's office has um, you know, prioritize sort of redder cities in some of its actions, Huntington Beach being sort of redder in Orange County, Elk Grove, which you've been very active on a, on a development uh, there that they've been rejecting in, in Sacramento um, County, redder than, than other communities. Um, whereas, you know, there are uh, lots of cities in Marin County, for instance, a Democratic stronghold that are out of compliance with housing element, a, a sort of historically um, city that's a community that have been anti-housing. Um, what do you make of the criticism? Like, look, like these Dems that control state government are targeting, you know, redder cities and not sort of the communities that um, that are kind of their bread and butter politically. I think it comes with the territory to to get the criticism, and and, and folks will read into it what they want to see. And our job is to go wherever the facts and the law take us. And that means going after the most brazen violators when appropriate. That includes Huntington Beach. Uh, their makeup on their council is their makeup on their council. Uh, we, we don't care what it is. We care what their actions are. And more importantly, their failures to act in compliance with the law. Elk Grove um, has been out of compliance for longer than they should and, and has had an opportunity to, to embrace corrective action, but has not. They're, they're, they're a blue council. And a Democratic mayor, uh, one of the first um, council, other cities that we went after, after was Pasadena, a, a Democratic mayor, a, a mayor from labor. And it, so it doesn't matter what, what your party is, uh, what your history is. The only thing we're caring about is your actions or your lack thereof. And 
people and leaders across the political spectrum and local jurisdictions have shown the capacity to violate state law. And so when they do, whoever they are, regardless of who they are, what party affiliation they have, uh, we, we will act as appropriate. I mean, Woodside as well, one of the early high profile, that's a Bay Area city. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's, you know that, the Bay Area is blue. So we, we, go, we act based on um, conduct and nothing else. So uh, I switched gears a little bit, um, and you brought up this legislation that you were a part of, AB 1482, which in addition, as you said, to these uh, just cause provisions that, that prevent um, eviction without lease violation, you also mentioned that there's a rent cap uh, uh, that is uh, for uh, uh, housing that's older than 15 years, right, rolling. Um, then cities around the state are, um, our communities are not, landlords in these communities are not allowed to raise the rent higher than 5% plus an, an inflation figure that is um, produced annually. Uh, and it's interesting because this law was passed in 2019, took effect in 2020, and every year, every August, when the inflation figures change, I call around to try to get someone to tell me what the new actual rent cap is, 5% plus something. It's actually 10% this year um, in, in San Diego, but it's, it changes differently or it's dependent on, and I'll call the governor's office. I've called your office. I've called legislative leaders of the Senate and, and the Assembly. Hey, give me the actual number. And no one wants to do it because no one is in charge in the legislation of actually setting and being accountable for what that number is. And that always struck me as, you know, well, if no one's taking charge of what the actual number for the allowable rent increase is, then who is enforcing right. whether tenants are um, uh, paying in excess or being subject to uh, excessive rents under this law? And this obviously is a law very near and dear to your heart. Um, what do you think you know, can and should be done to ensure that these, as you said, the most um, aggressive uh, pro-tenant rent cap in the country actually gets, gets enforced? I mean, you make a great point. I, I think clarity and certainty in the front end is, is, is the best approach. And having a legal opinion or some sort of authoritative declar declaration of what the max increase is for the eligible um, uh, tenants could make it clear on the front end. It, it, could, it could avoid um, unintended violation of the law. It could make tenants more aware of their rights and, and so that they can... Um, evaluate their own rent increases to see if they violate or not. Um, so you make a good point. I, I think it would be better and um, more helpful to have it clear on the front end. Uh, having said that, we've enforced AB 1482 on the anti-rent gouging component. We were involved in a South Bay landlord's violation of the law, and, and you know we worked with them. South Bay in LA? Sorry, South Bay in, in, the, in the San Francisco Bay area. Okay, yeah. It's, um, San Jose area. Yeah. And they were way above the 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 um, the limits on the on the increase. So, but I but I think there should be clarity and certainty. So you make a good point. You, there should be a, a, a clear and obvious and universal answer to your question. So if I uh, if I live in San Diego and my landlord tries to increase my rent ten percent, or I'm sorry, twelve percent right now, um, should I have should they call you? Uh, yeah, like yes. personally on your cell or <laughs> not, yeah. not me um, okay. necessarily, uh -huh. uh, but we have a housing portal for our housing justice team. You can send us a note and we've gotten lots of incoming 
um, violations of tenant protections, violations of AB 1482, violations of, of housing production, of housing element law. Uh, so our housing portal is the best way to get a, to get a response. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the increasing um, corporatization of rental housing, single family homes predominantly and otherwise. Um, you know, last year, uh, ProPublica published a really great investigation about concerns that, um, that real page software uh, that is used by some of the nation's biggest landlords to set rent prices, and they alleged were colluding to make those rent prices uh, higher because they were able to capture or understand so much of what the market share was. Um, the federal DOJ has been looking into this, um, but I'm curious whether this particular issue or issues like this are also on your radar at the AG's office and, and, and how you think about those. They are on our radar, and we don't comment on, on current or pending specific investigations, but we're, we're well aware of new technological approaches and um, uses, and no, no matter how you do it, whether you're a, a, you know, an individual landlord or you're a, a, a mega landlord with, with massive holdings and you're using technology, we have laws that prevent discrimination and that protect tenants. And so uh, we will, and, and, and in this in my role, I've seen that the, the challenges often change as uh, technology changes and new approaches emerge. So discrimination and violation of the law can look like many different things. So we need to always be up to date and um, on, on point with uh, the, the most recent actions. So that is on our radar. We're thankful that the federal DOJ is involved as well. I think in other state AGs are as well, and, and so are we. Um, I want to give, there's a lot of ballot measures statewide or as it relates to housing potentially coming up uh, next year. I wanted to do a little bit of a lightning round to get your takes. Um, first, there is the repeal, potential repeal of Article 34, which we discussed earlier, uh, which would uh, currently is a, is a hurdle to getting uh, public housing approved. There's a potential ballot measure that would uh, repeal Article 34 um, from the Constitution. Uh, how are you going to vote on that? No. Um, let me first say, I, I write the title in summary. So uh, since I do that, I, I'm more sensitive around the, the public positions that I take, the endorsements that I, I provide on the ballot measures that I write. It's very important that people trust me and my office to write fair, um, transparent, easy to understand titles and summaries. Um, but I think there's been no secret about who I am, what I stand for, in terms of addressing our, our housing needs. So I'm going to vote for anything that increases housing in a, in a thoughtful and fair way that helps us address our crisis, and anything that protects tenants in a reasonable way, um, and that's not unfair to landlords, and um, that addresses our crisis. That's, that's been the legislation that I've authored and the actions that I've taken as AG. So I'll, I'll punt on the rest of the ballot measures and just instead I'll ask the one more question that I'm allowed to ask. Um, so um, and I, every panel that I do now um, uh, with a, a lawmaker or someone in a position of power, I like to end with this question because I think it's really important. Um, so since the big wave of housing laws began being passed in 2017 at the legislature, um, housing prices are up, rents are up, homelessness is up, um, housing production relatively stagnant. Um, what does this say about the effectiveness of the state's approach in addressing housing affordability when by all metrics, all reasonable metrics, we're in a worse position now than we were six years ago when a lot of these laws were, were, were being passed? 
I, I don't know if that's the appropriate conclusion. Um, I, I understand that the, the point. Um, it could be that we've slowed down the, the, the rate increases on, on rents and housing, and instead of a median price of 800000 in the state, it could be a million. But for the action of leaders and legislators and attorneys general and, and other you know, pro-housing leaders across the state. So it, it's hard to know. But the conclusion is right that there is much more to be done and we haven't done enough. And we need to be more urgent and act faster and build faster. I mean, the, the, the numbers don't lie. We need 2.5 million units online by 2030. And, and on our current pace, 100 to 125,000 units a year, we're not going to get there. The, the price of uh, an average single-family home in, in San Diego is close to a million. And, and, and there's other places where there's, there's smaller markets, which are more than the 800,000 statewide. People like me wonder where their children are, are going to live if they can buy a home. Um, I don't think my kids can right now. And that is not something uh, reserved to just me. That is, I think, a universal belief and, and worry. So we need to do more. Um, we need to, I think a lot of what the state has been doing is, is on the right track. You know, the Senator Wieners of the world, the Assembly Wick, member Wixes of the world that are pushing, that are streamlining, that are expediting housing, producing, uh, providing by right housing, uh, making sure that CEQA doesn't unnecessarily delay and get in the way as we uplift the, the, and, and support our environmental uh, protections. We still build housing. They're not mutually exclusive. We can do both. So we need to do more of some of the things that are working, and then we need to assess what, what's not working. You know, the cost of a housing unit is too much. It might be easier to build um, less expensive units faster. We haven't had labor um, behind the effort to, to get those 2.5 million units. I think if we can, it, it, it's, um, you know, you, you blow open the doors and, and the, the, for possibility if, if we get everyone aligned and on the right side or on, uh, aligned politically. So I, I, it, it, it's a sobering set of facts that reminds us that there's much more to do. But I don't think you should necessarily conclude and draw from it that no progress has been made and that everything that's been done has been for naught. I, I, I think it would be, could be in a much worse position. Uh, and there could be some data that shows we've actually moved the needles, slowed down the, the price increases, and moving towards where we need to be, just not there yet. All right. Uh, please join me in thanking Attorney General Yeah, hold on. He's still got a couple things to answer. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, we did have an audience member that won the opportunity to, um, to ask you a question, but I have one, and then I can ask a question. So uh, the, uh, the mayor of San Diego, the city of San Diego, recently decided to join an amicus brief about um, a Supreme Court case that's approaching about whether cities are allowed to... Um, uh, perform the kind of sweeps or enforcement, uh, anti-camping enforcement. Uh, we passed a new camping ban here. I think it's a little odd for them to ask that it be legal or ruled legal, something they already decided to do. Uh, but they also, uh, the mayor of San Francisco and the governor uh, came out very harshly against the judge that he blames for them not being able to, uh, to sweep and, and uh, enforce anti-camping bans to the extent that they would like to. I'm curious, do you believe uh, that those enforcement measures that San Francisco and San Diego and other places would like to do are legal, or do you think they um, are illegal? 
So you, you're talking about a, a set of cases that are moving towards the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're going to get a decision. Grants Pass and Boise are the yeah. two cases, and they basically have held that it violates the Eighth Amendment for cruel and unusual punishment to to punish someone um, who is is homeless without if if you criminalize them without providing them with somewhere where they can be and stay and and, and sleep. And so, I think that in in San Diego and San Francisco and anywhere else that has a policy. If they are providing a, um, a unit and, and appropriate services to someone on the, the street who is involuntarily homeless, um, and um, then they are meeting their obligation. You, if, they need to provide an opportunity for them to get off the street in a way that addresses their needs. If they're saying, you can't, you, you, you can't stay here, we're not going to help you, just go somewhere else they're violating the law. But if they are providing them a compassionate place with services and, and programming for them, then that is compliant with the law. And if folks want to be voluntarily homeless and say no to what they're being offered, then they can enforce. And I think, that, I think that's an important balance. Can so, I, sorry, okay. yeah. And so I'll just say, you know, I, I understand the governor's um, frustration. Um, I understand the Mayor Breed and Mayor Gloria's fr- frustration and concern. Um, there was a, a magistrate judge that made a, a decision in, in San Francisco that was very difficult for San Francisco to work with. And so they're expressing themselves. But I don't want us to move the uh, pendulum too far the other way. We, we, we cannot make uh, being homeless uh, criminal and, and be punitive and be inhumane about it. We must always maintain our humanity and compassion and provide opportunities for shelter for those on the street. And then if after that folks are voluntarily electing not to accept, then um, force enforcement could be part of the, the, the actions of the cities after that. Just a very quick follow-up follow on this point. Do, do you think that, that the current kind of governing is the Martin versus Boise decision, do you think that should be overturned? Or, or do you think that that is the right, the right policy? I'll be honest, when, when Martin came down, I was a little surprised that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment was being used in this context and in this way. I, I think that a ruling, I think, I think Martin versus Boise needs clarification. Um, I think some people think that it means that until you have a plan for every single homeless person in a jurisdiction, San Francisco, let's say, you can't um, move one of them off the street. I think that's wrong. I think you can move any single individual off the street and into housing, and that complies with the Martin versus Boise uh, requirement. And you don't have to have a plan for everybody. It shouldn't be that because you don't have a plan for everybody, you can't help anybody. You should be able to help individuals and move neighborhood by neighborhood as long as you're fulfilling your duty to provide them uh, with a compassionate uh, shelter opportunity. Okay, thank you. Um, Colleen here won the opportunity, uh, answering a, a little trivia for me, uh, to ask you a question. So, uh, Colleen? Thank you. For the last 12 years, we have had one to two jail deaths per month, um, and we had a state audit that blamed those deaths on bad management and the failure to do any preventive measures. Um, there's been repeated uh, requests of your office to take receivership and I want to know how you're going to intervene to stop these deaths because nothing is. So, sorry, I missed the first part of your question. You're talking about San Diego County Jail? Yeah. Yeah. We're well aware of the data. Uh, uh, we have looked uh, uh, across the state at the 
sheriff's departments that have the highest in custody death rates, and San Diego's one of them. And so uh, a new sheriff was elected, and the first uh, meeting that I had with her was to talk about this. Um, welcome her to the role, offer support as well, but to talk about the disturbing um, number of in-custody deaths. And she shared some views with me. She also talked about some action uh, that she planned to take to uh, address some of the concerns that she had. And so I thought uh, appropriate and fair to allow the new sheriff to take a crack at addressing the problem that she's inherited as the new sheriff. And so we are due to have a follow-up meeting in short order, uh, but we're aware and we're working on it. Uh, a lawsuit is always possible. Uh, we launch pattern and practice investigations when civil rights are violated. We've done that in Riverside County with the Riverside Sheriff's, County Sheriff's Department, for example, and we can do it here as well. So that always remains an option, and it might be the option that we elect at some point. But at this point, uh, we're hoping that collaborative um, partnership to address a challenge that we are very disturbed by and aware of uh, can get results. Um, I did get a note that uh, there was a follow-up on the previous question um, about that uh, when you mentioned suitable um, shelter needed to be available. Do you have a definition in mind of what suitable is? Yeah, and that's, a, that, that's a tough question. But, but I, it needs to meet the basic needs of, of the individual who is unsheltered involuntarily. And so what do I mean by that? If, if it's someone who needs... Um, just a shelter and nothing else, then it's that. If it's someone who needs wraparound services that could include mental uh, health treatment or drug rehabilitation treatment, then that. If it's someone who has a pet and that's their family member, that's a tougher one, but it might mean that. If it's someone who has children, um, it might mean a, a safe place for them and their children. So we need to address and confront the unique circumstances of the individual and do your best. I mean, we could go down this rabbit hole where we're talking about 10,000 different requirements and then it becomes impractical. We need to be practical. We need to be common sense. At some point, the offer will have to be enough, even though it's not everything under the sky that's being asked for. Well, I, um, I just want to express uh, my gratitude for you making the trip and coming down and speaking. It's you know, obviously, uh, we remain objective, but I, I'm also grateful you helped make this a, a, a more engaging and interesting discussion. So thanks for coming down. Um, and uh, everybody, Liam, it's great to have him back, right? Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout out. You can watch this panel and see more panels, transcripts, and PolitiFest reports at politifest.org. Link is in the show notes. We'll be back on Friday with our regular news roundup. I'm Nate John, producer for the show. Scott Lewis is our CEO and editor-in-chief. Andre Lopez Villafania is managing editor. Jacob McWinney is our education reporter. Liam Dillon is a reporter with the LA Times. And Mackenzie Elmer is our voice environment reporter. And thanks to Attorney General Rob Bonta for joining us at PolitiFest 2023.